David, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pens these, what I have, no better word than startling words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. As we look at this psalm, I want to begin with the question that the little drummer boy asked. Do you hear what I hear? See, the first part of this psalm is to be for us an auditory experience. It is to be what we hear and what we do not hear. David here speaks of the words of his groaning. And if you have an older translation like the King James Version, it might even have the word roaring. It's the same word that in verse 13 we will find on the, in the mouths of the lions who roar. This is not a, a silent supplication. This is not a, a whisper to the master. This is the kind of a, a speech that is groaning that sounds like a lion's roaring. That desperate. That alone. And by day he cries those loud supplications. Pleadings to the Father. And so we know what we hear. We hear this noise coming from the mouth of David. But what is it that we do not hear? Where is their silence? God does not answer. The groaning is a one-way street. And there is no response coming back to David. Not only does David use this, this things that we hear, but he also uses spatial language so that we can get a sense of how he feels. God, God is like an object that can be moved from a closer distance to a further away distance. And what David is experiencing is this God who is not close, but this God who has moved far away. First of all, he says this God has forsaken to, to, to leave, to abandon him. It's so like God has gone on vacation. David knows not where he is. And so as a result, God is now perceived to be far away. And as you think about this introduction to this psalm, you may have conflicting things that are happening in your head and that are happening in your heart. If you begin by looking at this text with your head, you ask yourself the question, how is it even possible... That God could go far away from someone. I thought God was everywhere. Is David like Jonah who thinks he can flee from the presence of God? And yet on the one hand, we do know texts that talk about God's glory coming and dwelling in the midst of the temple. We hear about God's presence being in the very tabernacle of God. We even hear of texts like Ezekiel 10 where God leaves the temple and where God is no longer Present. And so we wonder, can God really be somewhere and not be somewhere? Well, David helps us. He answers the question for us. In Psalm 9:10, he says, For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you, 
or 37:28, he will not forsake his faithful ones. So can God forsake someone? Daniel says, nope. Sorry, David says, nope, not going to happen, can't happen. And then we wonder, why would this same David who says that's an impossibility be the very same David who cries out about the forsakenness of God? It seems that there might be things in the heart that the mind knows nothing of. When we speak about being forsaken by God, there's probably a part of our heart that says, I know exactly what that feels like. I can't explain it theologically or doctrinally, but I have felt that experience. And it is David himself who will, in Psalm 38, 21, say, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. So he is begging of God something that he says also is something that cannot happen. See, I wonder whether David would admit, like Brendan Manning, that he is a bundle of paradoxes. Have you ever felt that way? Brendan Manning says, I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good and I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and I am suspicious. I am a bundle of paradoxes. Have you ever felt that way? And isn't this David? David saying, well, God can't forsake you and I feel forsaken and God, please don't forsake me. How can all of those things be simultaneously true? See, we look at Psalm 22 as a journey of faith, a journey that is full of paradoxes and that is full of conflicting emotions. It is a psalm where we find abandonment and distance and absence and silence, but it's also a psalm where we find confidence and deliverance and praise. And if you had never lived this earthly existence, you would say, how is that possible to go from here to here? But for those of us who have lived probably more than five or ten years, you can say, I know how that's possible. And even you might think, well, David may have had this experience once, but I bet he never felt it again. Once he realized God didn't abandon him, the next time he got in a situation, he'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I know how this is going to turn out, so I'm not even going to worry at all. And yet we find Psalm after Psalm where David expresses a very similar sentiment. Because each time we enter once again into this time of lament, this time of despair, it feels just as real and just as uncertain and just as disorienting no matter how many times you've been through it. And so I want us to look at Psalm 22, and we'll do so first of all through the context of David in its original context, and then we're going to look at it on the lips of Jesus to find that this is a psalm that is typologically fulfilled through Christ and his time on the cross. But first, let's spend a little time here in its original context. I broke the psalm up into these three movements. Um, the first is Psalm 22, verses 3 through 9, which, which I entitled, Their Story and My Story, which David is specifically saying, Their story is not my story. And so David will be the first to say... The God has proven himself faithful to Israel. 
God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. And what David is saying there is all of those praises from every time God delivered his people, every time God rescued his people, they responded by praising. And all of that praising is like a chair that God sits upon because he has received so much praise throughout the generations. See, Israel, whenever they trusted, God delivered. When they cried out, God saved. When they trusted, they were not put to shame. And David says, oh, I believe that that happened all in the past. And I know that you're sitting in the midst of those praises. And David's going to say, but I want to call attention to the fact that's not my story. That's not what I'm experiencing right now. He says, I am a worm and not a human, scorned by others despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me and they shake their heads. And this, David tells us in verses 9 and 10, is a new experience for him. Uh, Being one who is raised within this covenant awareness of God's presence, he's not felt or experienced this distance from God before. But so he recognizes that in history God's worked, but he's wondering whether his story, his experiences are going to play out the same as Israel's. And so we move into this second part of the movement of this psalm, which is David's proof of divine absence. Again, he will show the ways that his story is contradicting this nature that God provides and God saves and God delivers. And he returns in the beginning in verse 11 to this, what is the central theme of this psalm? Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help See, David says, if God is present, then he will deal with all this adversary. But since the adversaries remain, surely God must be present. And he wants us to know how severe, how desperate his situation is. And so that's what he does in verses 12 through 18. He uses language to talk about the enemies, the the bulls and the lions and the dogs and the oxen. And he is the center of all of this prowling and all of this attacking. And his situation is so desperate that he is certain it will end in his own death. He says in the 15th verse, you lay me down in the dust of death. So he is saying the very next step in this phase is that a grave will be dug. And it is not the enemies who will put me in that grave. It is you yourself, God, who will be putting me in that grave. He says in verse 18, they divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, in in any time of an adversarial situation or, or an execution, the very last thing that they do before the execution is they begin to negotiate for your clothing as if to say, you're not getting out of here. You will have no more need for these clothes. When that happens, it's like somebody has fired up the electric chair, and you know what's coming next. And so in verse 20, he says, my life is threatened, my soul from the sword, my life from the dog, and myself from the very mouth of the lion. It's going to end in my death. There is no other choice here. There is no other option here. In verse 19, there is this final asking, this final plea that continues the theme. But you, O Lord, do not be far away Oh, my help, come quickly to my aid. If God does not show up now, it will be my death. David longs for God to come near because when God comes near, so does deliverance and redemption. 
And so then this is the third move when that divine intervention comes. The dramatic reversal that begins in verse uh, 21 in the second part, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me. This perfect tense is either expressing David's confidence in knowing that God will intervene, that there's somehow been a sign that God will now deliver him from death, or David has now already experienced the deliverance of death. And so what does he do when God delivers? He, he will tell of the name of God to his brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. And David says, I will praise him. You notice we began with praise in verse 3. Israel is praising God, but David is saying, that's not my story. I can't join in that praises because God has not delivered me. But now once deliverance comes, David finds himself in the line of this long history of praisers. And he himself is praising God in the midst of the assembly. David, who was alone and abandoned, now finds himself in the midst of the community of believers, joining God and celebrating God's provision and deliverance. And the reason is because in the second part of verse 24, he did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. See, we look at life through time spans and through frameworks and from today's perspective that verse one and two can seem like an awfully long time can't it god doesn't answer and the next day god doesn't answer but here we find david has now experienced that god indeed has heard his cries. That, that when God seemed like he was silent, in fact he was not, but that God was about something and that God was doing something. And when God shows up in this psalm, you find a total reversal of, of the whole movement and of the whole direction. See, so we do have David crying out in verse 2, and then it's not till verse 24 we find that God does indeed hear we find Israel praising in verse 3, and now in verse 21, David, along with the congregation, praises. In verse 7, David is surrounded by those who mock him, and in verse 25, he's surrounded by those who are praising God along with him. In verses 4 and 5, we find that God is at work in the past, and in verse 30, we find that God is at work in the present as well as into the future, trusting that God is confidently at work. In verse 15, he is near death. And in verse 29, he is speaking of all those who are living for him. In verse 15, he is blaming God for laying him down in the dust of death. And in verse 31, he is proclaiming he has done it. Not death, but instead deliverance. See, one of the things that I think becomes a lesson for us is that today's assessment of the situation is not a predictor of tomorrow's outcome. How often have you been in experiences that felt like Psalm 1 and 2 of 22 in those verses? And the reality about being in that place is those easy answers, they're not nearly as effective as you think that they are. Well, just wait till tomorrow. How many tomorrows have you woken up and the problem still remains? Hardship and the suffering. You see, this psalm is not one to say that, that, that the experience of deliverance, then therefore it negates what happens in verses 1 and 2. All of these experiences across the board are a part of our faith journey. 
See, this psalm often uh, began to be used in a liturgical way for those who were sick or who were near death. That it would become a reminder that when all seems hopeless, when it seems like this is your fate, when it seems like your destiny is sealed, God can still show up. And God can still bring deliverance. And God's name can still be praised out of this situation. But I wonder about this psalm on the lips of Jesus. It's probably the way we're most familiar with it. See, the gospel writers, specifically Matthew and Mark, use Psalm 22 as, as, as if to say that this is actualized. It is fulfilled in what happened on the cross. And Psalm 22 and the whole movement of it seems like a good commentary of the entire movement of these final crucifixion scenes of Jesus. See, like David, Jesus is surrounded by enemies. Matthew tells us those who passed by derided him shaking their heads. And just like David, Jesus is taunted also for his faith in God. They said of him, he trusts God. Let God deliver him now. And like David, they divided his clothes among themselves as if to show the certainty that death is next. And just like David, Jesus spoke of experiencing the abandonment of God. Matthew 27, 45 and following. From noon on, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what is Jesus doing here? As he quotes from this psalm. I think that when Jesus takes on the sins of humanity, he experiences the forsakenness of God. And there will be debates whether God forsook him or whether Jesus experienced the forsakenness. But in whatever mysterious way, Jesus finds himself distant from the Father. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sakes he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sins are placed on Jesus Christ, and he is then treated as if he were us, sinners rebellious to our Father. And just like in Ezekiel 10, where God packs his bags and he moves out of the temple because the continual sin and rebellion of his people, when Jesus takes on our sin, God leaves Christ there on the cross. And I want you to think about the level of sorrow that David felt in the abandonment. He said, from my mother's womb, I've known what it's like to live in covenant relationship with you. What would it be like to be God himself, the son having never existed from the very beginning of time apart from relationship with the father? then now for the first time he experiences something he has never experienced before. Life without his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years he's never experienced that abandonment. And the thing that David keeps pleading for in the psalm is come near. Do not be far away. Christ suffers as he experiences the abandonment of his father. 
If you ask people who have experienced different kinds of abandonment, what's the most painful thing you've endured in your life? It's often that abandonment. A parent, a loved one, a friend. Christ experiences humanity at its deepest and at its darkest point. Can we even begin to imagine the pain of that separation? And in the midst of this, I do think what Jesus is doing is he is reminding us of the movement of Psalm 22 in an interesting and in a unique way. It's pretty common that people would quote the first verse of a psalm as a reference to the entire psalm. It's as if to say that we are to be reminded as we look at the cross that what is experienced today will be vindicated tomorrow. That, that, that the case... And the situation will be reversed. That there will be a turning point. He experiences the God forsakenness, but he knows that this will end in deliverance. See, in John's gospel, Jesus' final words are, it is finished. A saying that is very similar to the ending of Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one: he has done it. It's been completed. It's been finished. But if we know how Psalm 22 has been used, we're very disoriented at this point. Because it was a reminder that it might look like you're going to die, but God, He's going to intervene and He can save you from death. And when Jesus quotes that, those hearing it would be saying, it looks like He's going to die, but He won't. God's going to come and deliver Him and God's going to save Him from death and we're going to end up celebrating and then what happens? Jesus dies on the cross. And you begin to think there is no highlight to this psalm. There is not going to be time of praising in the congregation. There is not going to be a time when God's deliverance comes because now death has come. And this psalm no longer is in effect and no longer is a word of encouragement for us. But what actually happens through the relationship of this psalm and Jesus' crucifixion is that Jesus is teaching us and God is teaching us of a new sense of time and of a new sense of ending. Because even with death, today's situation is not a predictor of tomorrow's outcome. Death is not the end. The story has yet to continue, and the story is yet to be told, even after death. See, Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And of everything that everybody knew of Psalm 22, they would say, but he wasn't heard. He wasn't because he died there on the cross. So in what sense was he heard? What we learned from the New Testament was not that Jesus was delivered from dying, but he was delivered from death by the power of resurrection. At, at the very moment that everyone is convinced this cannot have a happy ending, three days in the grave, 
It is finished. That at that very moment, God reverses the entire fortune and movement of the story. And says, I will deliver. And he delivers through resurrection. And so Hebrews 12, 11 and 12 says, For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus' story ends in what? It ends in praise. Just like Psalm 22, when it seems so bleak, when it seems so certain that God cannot redeem this situation, God redeems it. And the congregation, they gather together and they praise God because once again, He has heard. And once again, He has provided. Once again, He has saved. And once again, He has delivered. As someone once said, the whole point of the Christian narrative is that it isn't over yet. And isn't that an encouraging word for us? Yes, there will be times we find ourselves in a Psalm 22, 1 and 2 situation where all seems lost. Where all seems hopeless. But somewhere behind that we know and we have this reminder that it isn't over yet. Maybe there's that person who was sick and you prayed for them and you prayed for them and they died. This psalm is a reminder that it's not over yet. A loved one, a beloved family member who you've lost, it's not over yet. See, I think what we learn from this psalm is similar to what we learn from Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, that today might be a time to weep, but there will always be a time to laugh. That today might be a time to mourn, to mourn, but every tomorrow will end in dancing. See, this is the promise and the movement of the gospel story. Jesus Christ has secured a victory. And the victory is this, the forsakenness that he experienced on the cross for those who believe in him and trust in him, who have given themselves completely in the waters of baptism, they do not have to experience that forsakenness. That for them, they know that even in death, the story is not over. The promise continues. If you have not yet fully given yourself over as a disciple to Jesus, this is an opportunity to say, I want to experience intimacy with God that has been secured by Jesus on the cross. And I want to know that my death is not the ending, but it's simply it is a new beginning. I think this psalm offers us that opportunity and an invitation to know that God can deliver any situation and any person. No matter how convinced you are, there is no turning back. So if you do want to respond, um, we're going to sing a song in a moment. I invite you to come back and just talk to someone, pray with someone. We'd be happy to do that. Before we do that, I do want to offer uh, a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we enter into the world, we enter reminded of this truth, that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and sing. And if you need anything, come to the back while we stand.